Let's make it a good one, eh? I'm Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. This is episode 20, The Blow-Up Doll and Stoplight Tom. I'm going to guarantee you that the story at the end from Lisa Barber is going to blow your mind. Stoplight Time, Tom is one that uh, gave me chills. So let's get to business. Subscribe on iTunes. Review it. You know, yada, 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 that whole thing. Also, Patreon. You know the drill. www.patreon.com slash Peculiar Journeys. Become a patron for a dollar a month. There's going to be a lot of new audio and video coming up so now's a good time also christmas and this puppy sure and finally i got just released a new book like a burning moth with no idea how it caught on fire you can get that as a paperback or as a kindle edition on amazon just Type in like a go to Amazon and type in like a burning moth and it'll come right up or go to my author page. All that good stuff. All right, so let's get right into our stories. Uh, our guest today is Lisa Barber. Lisa, you can find her at lisakbarber.com. She is an actress, a comedian, a writer, a blogger. Uh, she teaches yoga. She's got a lot of things going on. She's an absolutely lovely person. She's a friend of Jeff Tomlinson, who was a friend of Dana's from episode 16 about the nudist colony or the nudist party um and she told me two stories sitting in the living room the first one was about performing she used to perform with second city she was very popular she did the cruises that kind of stuff and sometimes you get stuck in a situation where what you do in a performance situation does not translate well to the rest of your life so let's go ahead and jump right in with lisa barber and the blow-up doll uh, so i started on the cruise ships and it was so much fun because you're getting paid like a ton of money and you worked like no hours because I was on the cruise ship where you did like, you know, two shows in one night, two shows in another night, and then a murder mystery, and the rest of the time was like free time. And the first couple weeks you're walking around, everyone thinks you're a celebrity, and they want like your, you know, name and sign and pictures, and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm living my life. And then that wears off fast. And then it's like, I just remember thinking at times, oh reality stars aren't crazy all they've done is taken normal people put them in closed spaces with too much free time and it like brings out all of your worst qualities um so i i remember that and then um i did a famous second city scene where the woman's a blow-up doll and like at first you don't realize that like it looks like oh you know she's just this cute girl who's sleeping and her boyfriend setting up this romantic scene and then all of a sudden he goes to wake her up and then he blows her up and you realize he's like setting up this romantic scene with a blow-up doll and it was always my favorite scene anytime directors asked me I was like I want to do the blow-up doll scene I think it's great so they let me do it on the cruise ship and again I quickly realized that is not the scene you want to be doing because 
every like Wednesday was when we did the show and Thursday through Saturday until people got off I got stopped by like preteen boys and teen boys and really old nasty men and it wasn't just like can I get your name it was can I take your picture and will you be the blow-up doll <laughs> and it was horrifying and then flash forward to when I was touring with Second City we went to North Central College my alma mater to do a show and they put the blow-up doll scene in there. And I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. And I tried talking them out of it and they're like, no, it's, it's a great scene. Everyone loves it. It's perfect for the college crowd. We've got to do it. It'll be fine. So I do it. And then the North Central Alumni Magazine comes out the next month. And there I am as a blow-up doll. Flash forward to last fall in my interpersonal class with like older students. I give them my like welcome history, like, oh, I've, you know, toured with Second City, I've taught, blah, blah. And a student raises his hand and says, were you here performing with North Central a couple years ago? And I said, yes. And he looks at his friends and they start nodding. And I'm like, yeah, I was the blow up doll. Lisa's story uh, reminded me, I was thinking about times I'd been in situations where something I had done as an actor or a performer sort of uh, blended in, did not did not mix well with my actual real life kind of thing. And I realized that I, I did a long time ago. I performed. Uh, I, I, I was an actor for hire. I was a, a, an improv comedian. I was a part of comedy sports. Um, I had been a part of Second City really long, like really long time ago. And um, I did get caught in a situation where my day job and a hired acting gig kind of collided. And so I want to share the story with you. Is It's, it's entitled, Wearing a G-String for Morton Downey Jr. I've been arrested twice in my life. Both times were for public nudity. So when one of the pieces of advice my mother gave me as I packed up my truck to move to somewhere after college was don't get naked on television keep your clothes on it made perfect sense i kept that advice until i was hired to perform on a locally produced sh talk show the morton downey jr show i was a seventh and eighth grade music teacher by day and actor and improviser by night mostly the two didn't intersect now the gig was to be a part of a beauty pageant the chunks versus the hunks and given that i was at least 60 to 80 pounds heavier at the time i was definitely one of the chunks for 250 bucks i was to bring my bathing suit and be prepared to make fun be made fun of by an audience of morons and the inimitable morton downey jr the big mouth i was down for that 250 bucks so I showed up and I was ushered into a green room filled with odd body types. A huge black linebacker looking guy, a skinnier than a beanpole kid, a robust woman who looked like she'd eaten children for breakfast, and me. The hunks, Barbie types with fake tits and spray tan muscle dudes, had their own green room because we were not to mingle until we met on the air. Well, the chunks were all in good humor, and we joked about the job and laughed at stuff, laughed at the idea of going on TV in our bathing suits, which were all fairly modest. I mean, mine went down on my knees. Until a PA came in with a tiny red Speedo. Can I get one of the men to wear this for the show? Linebacker and Beanpole looked right at me and said, he will. So I took the Speedo, and we all laughed. Five minutes later, the PA came in with a red G-string. 
Anybody? No one volunteered. And in a moment of complete clarity and perhaps insanity, I said, give it to me. Well, who's going to wear the Speedo? I am. I have an idea. So for the first 15 minutes of the show, Downey interviewed the hunks. Center chair was taken up by a guy who looked like Fabio, but spoke like he was from Wisconsin. He was dumb as a bucket of bleach blonde hair extensions, and I was ready. They introduced me last when they introduced the chunks. It was sort of like, you know, hey. And so I came out in my red Speedo, got to the front of the stage, turned around, bent over, asked to the audience, and pulled the Speedo off, revealing the G-string. The crowd gasped, and then they laughed, and they applauded in spite of the, you know horrifying image of my hairy ass so the next 40 minutes or so flew by i was the ultimate smart ass consistently demonstrating how stupid the hunks were making snarky comments about them and boosting the rep of we chunks linebacker handed mba robust gal was getting her masters in psychology and beanpole was a member of mensa while denigrating the shallow dipshits across the aisle it was fun and sarcastic and in the end the studio audience awarded a bob's big boy doll to the winning contestant me I didn't look good in the bathing suit, but apparently I rocked the Q&A. So three, eight, three weeks later it aired. Uh, my first ex-wife and I had a party. We videotaped it on VHS, which many of you equate with etching it on Slate. It was fun. It was funny. I sat my big boy doll in my lap. The next day, I was almost immediately called into the principal's office at school. It seemed that 75 parents had seen me on television in a G-string with their children watching and had called my boss to have me fired. Mr. Barrias was flummoxed. I was on a two-day no-pay suspension and was to report that morning to the district superintendent's office. I didn't even try to defend myself. When Jose looked to me for an explanation, I just shrugged and smiled. I mean, what's the explanation? Well, Dr. Joan Ferris was the superintendent, and her office was exactly what you think it was. Brown, filled with hard wooden chairs in the outer foyer, lots of books as thick as your arm lining one wall, and a stale, dusty smell. I sat in one of those straight-back chairs for a full 90 minutes before I was called in. The conference room was set for maximum reprimand. A long wooden table surrounded by high-backed leather chairs, one chair on the end for me. Ferris on the far side. Six members of the Chicago Public School Board on the longer edges. They looked like something out of a Coen Brothers film. Like they were very, very serious, but it was very funny to me. You understand why you're here, Mr. Hall? Yep. Excuse me? Yes. Yes. I understand why I am here. You're like Judge Judy, but with a shock of almost bright white hair. And what do you have to say for yourself? And I smiled the same smug grin that's gotten me in more trouble with authority than I care to relate. <sighs> Dr. Ferris, members of the board, I smoke cigars from time to time, but never in school. My smoking habits are my personal business. I also drink beer and scotch whiskey, but never at school. Again, my personal business. And, I paused... And apparently I go on television wearing nothing but a six-inch piece of red, red cloth to cover my genitals, but never at school. I'm here because you want me to be ashamed of doing something that was perhaps stupid, definitely juvenile, and outrageously public. I'm not. Ferris stared at me as if she were trying to mentally will me into a spontaneous combustion moment. Wait, let me amend that. I might wear a G-string, red G-string at school, but I might be wearing one right now, but I'm never going to tell. And her facade 
cracked a smile. She sent me home and I was called the next morning and told to report to class. According to Jose, the students had started a petition that over 400 parents had signed in order for me to keep my job. I mean, I'd love the takeaway to be something about fighting the moralistic impulses of the man or marching to the beat of a different drummer, but I can't. In an age when high school teachers get convicted for having sex with their students, I suppose I understand the outrage on some level, but if every time any one of us did anything stupid for money, we were fired or vilified, no one in this room could afford another beer or show our faces in public. I still have the videotape, but I no longer have a VHS player. I could get it transferred to DVD, but why would I? So as Lisa and I were talking, uh, we we got into some of the dating thing. She's single and uh, and she's you know, dating, and, and dating is uh, a lot of... The dating in the modern world is a pain in the ass anyway, but this was, uh, I asked her, I said, so after we talked a little while, I said, so what's like your nightmare dating story? And we all have nightmare dating stories. I remember when I, when I was single, that period in between my first, my, my second divorce and my third marriage, where I was, uh, I was doing the match.com. I did OkCupid, eHarmony. I did all that. And I had some, uh, I had some pretty sketchy, dating experiences absolutely uh i had uh, i'm you know i'm not going to gaslight anybody and say they were crazy but there were a certain number of people i think probably the most interesting one well there's a lot of interesting ones but one was uh at the time the blog that i had was called an angry white guy in chicago and i wrote a lot of political stuff and it was during the george bush years and so i was really pretty angry um and um I, I ended up going out with a woman. We sat down and she starts the date off by saying, okay, well, first off, I want you to know that I read your blog. And I went, oh, and this was through, I think, match.com. I read your blog. And I went, oh, and I'm, you know, that could be a double-edged sword with me. You know, you never know uh, if it's going to get good or if that's going to be a, you're like, oh, and you suck. She said, but you, uh, the second thing you have to understand is that I am politically not at all in your realm. She said, I, I have to let you know that, that Dick Cheney is a personal hero of mine and uh, that I, I, I don't think torture is unnecessary. I think torture is absolutely necessary, necessary when it comes to enemy, enemy combatants. And you know, this is where I stand. So if you want to have, you know, for our date, if, if we want to argue about some of this stuff, that's fine. And so I, I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom and I stood there. And I thought, this is going to go badly. Dick Cheney is her hero. I want to get the fuck out of here. And I had one of those uh, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction moments where you're standing in the bathroom, not coked up, of course, but standing in the bathroom, looking in the mirror, go, talking to myself, going, okay, how do I get the hell out of this restaurant without her seeing me? Because I kind of want to ditch. And I thought, no, don't ditch. Be, you know, be a dude. You know, don't, don't be a gentleman, at least. And so I came back. I sat down. I said, well, here's the thing. We, we probably don't want to talk about that kind of stuff because that's not going to go very well. So let's just not talk about politics and just enjoy our meal and see how things go. So we ended up, you know, going, you know, we ended up having a pretty decent conversation, had a lot of fun. Um, I will say that, yes, uh, we went back to her place, and yes, there was sex, but then uh, I told her, yeah, we can't, if Dick Cheney is your personal hero, we're never going to be able to talk about anything but around politics, and I'm not sure if that's going to, that's not going to fly. So that's, that's not certainly the craziest uh, story, but it's just one of those, uh, it's like dating is a pain in the ass. Well, Lisa has a story that is going to raise the hair on the back of your neck. 
It is the worst, I think, in my opinion, the worst dating experience I think I've ever heard in my life. So here is Stoplight Tom. I think I just pick really bad people. And I think the thing is, is that I think every time that I've broken that, and then I find out very soon I did not. So probably the craziest, scariest uh, date, I don't even know if I ever told you the story because for a while I didn't realize it was as bad as I, I just didn't realize it. Um, this was before I was married and my family was going through a lot of issues and I was always raised in like a religious home and I was the oldest and I was terrified to make any mistakes. So I did everything exactly and if I wasn't sure how to do it, I would clarify. I mean, this is everything. And I would do it right. And then all of a sudden, like, the shit hit the fan in my family. And I was like, well, screw this. I'm going to start making some bad choices. Because yeah. apparently, it does not matter. And it was like when Sex in the City was big. So it was really cool to date people and, like, give them a nickname and not think about their last name. Which I found out later is not the smartest plan because you kind of <laughs> need to know where people end up. And um, so it was my birthday, and I want to say it was like my 23rd birthday. And my friend and I, we were living in Aurora, Jill Daly, and we were going downtown Naperville uh, to get drinks. And we were driving out of our apartment complex, and this whole uh, street, like you would never get a red light, ever. Well, we happened to pull out and there was a red light and this hot guy, I remember at the time thinking he looked like John Stamos, so like 10 points right there, uh, pulled up next to us and I said to my friend Jill, I'm like, that guy's cute. And the light turned green and she's like, if we get another red light, you have to like give him your number and tell him to call you because it's your birthday. And we happened to get one. So I like roll down my window and I'm hanging out of the car and I'm like, it's my birthday. <laughs> Such an idiot. You have to call me at like 10, 14 tonight and tell me happy birthday. And he's like, okay, because I'm a cute girl hanging out of a window. And um, so I give him my number and we go to the bar and then, you know, it's getting closer to like, I gave him like 10, 14 or some random time. And all of a sudden the phone rings. So I go to the bathroom and he calls and he's Tom, which we then started referring to him as Stoplight Tom. And um, happy birthday and you know, how old are you and all this stuff and like, where do you live? And so find, come to find out, we're like 10 minutes away from each other walking distance. So we arranged to go for a walk in a field uh, a couple days later and we do and it's nice. And he's, you know, cute. And of course, I am an idiot. I have no idea what, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. So it was like, all right, this is fine. And so then we, we kind of started slowly dating. And Tom had like weird quirks. Like um, he only, he worked at Menards, only would work the night shift. He would bike around in this really old bike without shoes, like all the time. Like he would go by my house, like without shoes. Like my friends were over one night. I had gone to bed and they were like outside watching like, I don't know, the police were around or something. And they're like, we just saw Tom, stop like Tom, and he's biking around without shoes on. I'm like, that's what he does. Um, he was obsessed with sunbathing. So he would just pull over and like lay on the hood of his car for hours because he had all his free time during the day. And where I lived, my bedroom overlooked like, you know, one of those really shitty makeshift ponds that they have in subdivisions in the suburb. And I remember coming home one day and I'm changing and I never close the blinds and I look out and there he is on a raft, like sunbathing. 
and I'm like out the window, I'm like, Tom, and he's like, hey, I've been waiting for you. And I was like, how long have you been here? And he's like, since 10 this morning. And I'm like, I work a nine to five job, Tom. How did you not remember that? He'd just been sunbathing out there. He would leave randomly and go to Las Vegas. He was obsessed with Las Vegas. Um, he didn't have a checkbook. He didn't have credit cards. He always paid in cash. One time I got a frantic phone call. Um, remember the foundry in Naperville? Yes. They do like horse racing things on the TV. And I got a frantic phone call that's like, can you come to the foundry and bring me $20? And so I did because I was like, this guy's exciting. And um, then one time he was like, he was obsessed with Orange Julius, which I'd never heard of. And apparently the buffet in Las Vegas, one of the reasons he went to Las Vegas is because they had Orange Julius. And he was obsessed with finding a more local place to get this Orange Julius. So he picks me up one night, we're supposed to go to dinner in downtown Naperville, and he's like, I found a place that has Orange Julius. Can we go there instead? And I was like, of course. Two and a half hours later, we're in Indiana. We walk in, he orders an Orange Julius. I'm like, I'm starving, I'm looking at the menu, and he takes a drink, puts it down, and he's like, this isn't right, gets up, walks out to the car and starts it. I follow him out, and I'm like, are we gonna eat? And he goes, no, we can't eat here. They lied about Orange Julius. Get back in the car and drive the other two and a half hours back, and he drops me off. So all this crazy stuff is happening, and I'm still hanging around, because I think it's exciting. And one night, I'm over at his house, and we didn't know what to watch. And he's like, we could watch one of my serial killer uh, videos, VHS. And I was like, mm, I'm, not, I'm not really into that. And he's like, really? That's one of my hobbies. And I was like, what is your hobby? He goes, when I get time off from Menards, one of the things I like to do if I can't afford Vegas is I like to go on these like serial killer tours. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, but I don't go to like the places where like you can see where the bodies were found. I like do my research and find out like where they killed their first animal. And I like to go there. And I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, you know what I, one of my like big things is right now? And I was like, what? And he goes, do you remember that man who killed his wife and buried her in the shallow grave in Aurora out in the country? And I was like, no. And he goes, oh, that happened just a few years ago. So I like to go hang out there at the house because they didn't sell the house because they didn't know what to do with it. And it's like abandoned, but like I can get open a window. And sometimes I like to just go there and hang out. In fact, I took some of their family pictures and I made a photo album. <laughs> and he goes, I'm gonna show it to you. And I was like sitting there like, what the fuck? And I was like, okay. And he brings it down and he has literally made a family photo album with photos he has taken from frames in their house and he's telling me about the family and like he's like the grave is still there the shallow hole we should go sometime and I was like I I don't think that's my thing but I that's cool that you're into it maybe not I don't see myself doing that so then one night it's like again because he always worked at Menards and I had a real job so we didn't get together until like 11 30 at night he was like, let's go to the casino in Aurora, also a passion of his, but he didn't drink. So he would get like a Shirley Temple. Um, and he said, let's go to the casino in Aurora. And I'm like, cool, I've never been, that sounds so fun. So he picks me up and he's weird, like has a weird look in his eye, won't really speak to me. And I kind of got a vibe right off the bat that something was not right. And he pulls up to Jewel, but like, pulls up on the sidewalk where the door is, like literally in front of it on the driver's side. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going in to get duct tape and rope 
stay in the car. So me being an idiot, stay, I stay in the car. Ooh. And I call my friend and I'm like, I think stoplight Tom might be trying to kill me. Not real sure. I'm going to write it out, see what happens. So I stay in the car. I'm like, but keep your phone on. <laughs> and this is when like cell phone reception was not great. He comes back and I swear I wish he would have gotten duct tape and rope because instead all he has is carrots from the produce section and like the carrots with the leaves on that haven't been cleaned. Won't speak to me, is staring straight ahead and just starts eating these carrots as he's speeding down the highway and throwing them out the window, like throwing the stems out. He loved the killer, so he's got the killers blasting. He never is, like we were always together late at night, but as long as I knew him, we never stopped once at a stoplight. He always flew right through them, never got hit. So we're driving down this, I'm still under the assumption we're going to the casino. And all of a sudden I realized that we're not. And I was like, hey, the casino's a different direction. Uh, where are we going? Won't answer me, is gripping the wheel, staring straight ahead, eating these carrots, throwing them out the window, not stopping at stoplights. And we pull down this long gravel road. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm going to the murder house. <laughs> And so I'm like thinking about all my Oprah tips and I'm like, hey, Tom, I don't feel well. Like, I kind of like to go home. Well, it's like, I'm not speaking. And then it was just like a movie. He turns real fast and we're in this driveway and the lights illuminated this old abandoned house. And so I like, I'm gripping the seat and he's staring straight ahead and I'm like talking my ass off trying to get him to at least acknowledge me and I'm asking him to take me home and he said get out of the car and I was like I'm not getting out of the car I want to go home and he's like get out of the fucking car Lisa and I was like no and I like again Oprah I looked him in the eye and I was like I'm not getting out of this car and the only way I'm getting out of this car is if you drag me and I'm thinking that's what you've got in mind and I want you to know I'm gonna bite my ass off and if I live you are going to pay for this and he just kind of looked at me for a couple seconds and then he yelled at me again and said get out of the car I want you to get in the fucking hole and I said I am not getting in the hole and he just stared at me and then he looked straight ahead for like 30 seconds looked back at me got out leaned in the car and said stay in the fucking car or I'll come find you slammed the door, walked off, was gone for 15, 20 minutes, came back and was like a whole new person. Got in the car, was super chatty. I'm shaking, I'm sweaty. He's driving back and he's like, so are we gonna go to the casino? And I was like, you know, I don't, it's later than I thought. I think I'd like to go home. And he's like, okay, I'm sorry. I, sorry for the detour. Like, I understand, but we definitely need to go. What are you doing this weekend? And just like a normal person at this point drops me off. And so then in my mind, I'm like, what's going to happen? <laughs> so I was like, well, the serial killers always kill the people that break up with them, right? So then in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to date him for two more weeks and become a crazy girlfriend. So I like started calling him at weird times, which for him was like during the day. And then I like showed up at his, uh, his house, townhouse a couple times and was like accused him of cheating on me. And then I was like, if you don't ask me to move in with you, then it's over. And like finally about two weeks later, he was like, Lisa, I don't think this is working out. I think we need to like 
end it. And I was like, what? No. And, um, and then he broke up with me and then like wanted nothing to do with me. And then he called me like a year before I was getting married, which was years later. And I answered, I didn't know the number. And he was like, Lisa? And I'm like, hi, who is this? He goes, it's Tom. What are you doing? I was wondering if you were still single. And I'm like, no, I'm getting married in a couple weeks. He goes, oh, that's too bad. Do you think it's going to work out? And I was like, well, Tom, I hope so. <laughs> and he's like, all right, well, if it doesn't, you got my number. And that's the podcast for this week. Lisa was a blast, and I'll have more folks coming your way with more stories in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Lisa Barber. Check her out at lisakbarber.com, and certainly let her know how much you loved her stuff today. Quick plug. If you like your stories live as well as recorded, check out The Back Room on the third Sunday of every month at Hamburger Mary's in Oak Park. Host curators Peter Legrand and Margaret Burke really are both superlative storytellers, and they they really do. They put on one hell of a show. Go to Facebook.com slash Backroom Stories, and you can get their schedule. In closing, let me encourage you, when given the opportunity to tell that story, when you have a chance to tell a story, tell that story maybe doesn't make you look so good but says something important to your audience. You know, one of those transformative tales of mistakes and lessons, all that kind of shit. We live at a time where no one's really listening anymore, so when you actually do capture someone's attention, I think you have a responsibility to make it count and not just make it something you makes you look good or makes you popular or gets you a lot of kudos. Um, make it count. Make it say something that if somebody's going to listen to you, means something and they'll take away from it. Peculiar Journeys is a bi-weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or you can catch it on SoundCloud. Thanks, and I'll talk to you in two weeks. 